Good morning. Thank you to our worship team for leading us this morning as we are blessed to honor our 2020 graduates this morning. You know, a long time ago, back in the year 1888, a man named Ludwig died. Ludwig was his first name. And when the local newspaper heard about his death, of course they did what newspapers do. They set out to report it to the people. But the people at the paper had gotten confused because the man who died, whose name was Ludwig, had a brother at the time whose name was Alfred. And instead of printing the obituary for Ludwig, they printed the obituary for his brother, Alfred, who was still alive. And Alfred opens up the newspaper that particular morning and sees his own obituary there printed. And for the first time, this man named Alfred got a glimpse of what people really thought about him. You see, Alfred was a famous chemist and a famous inventor. And the most notable thing that he had invented was dynamite. And his heart sank when he read the obituary and about himself. And it, it was titled, The Merchant of Death is Dead. After reading this obituary that uh, was meant for him, of course it was by mistake, he, he began to ask himself though, is this how I am going to be remembered? And at 55 years old, uh, he decided that this was not the way that he wanted to be remembered and he decided that he needed to change. And from that day on, he began working on world peace. He made world peace his number one goal and he only lived eight more years. And when he died that eight years later, he willed vast majority of his great wealth to be used to establish an award to be given to those who are deemed to be servants of humanity. Today it is the world, one of the world's most prestigious awards and I am sure that most of you have heard of it. It was a prize named after its founder, Alfred Nobel. And as I think about that this morning, I want to ask you this question, what about you? To, to our graduates, what about you? To those that are watching, what about you? How will you be remembered? You know, every year when people graduate and at the end of a school year, people get yearbooks and, and, and everybody signs the yearbook. And, and from time to time, somebody will write something really heartfelt, but at other times they're just writing silly stuff, being funny, making a reference to an inside joke. But, but, but listen, if, if, somebody, uh, if somebody were to take your yearbook, students, whether you're a senior or you are a freshman, however old you are, if they were to take your yearbook and write in the back of your yearbook what they really thought about you, if they were being gut level honest about who they believe you to be, what would they say? If you're here today and you put yourself in the, in the position of Alfred Nobel, who was reading an obituary written about himself, if, you, if, if your obituary was written today, what kind of legacy would you leave behind with the life that you're living today? And what kind of legacy will you leave behind in the life that you are headed for tomorrow? 
Think about it like this. If somebody was to follow in your footsteps, they were to follow exactly in your footsteps, whether it's at school, at work, at home, with your family, at church, whatever it is, if they were to follow in your footsteps, where would it take them? The question is this. Are you living for what matters most? And this morning, as, as we celebrate our 2020 graduating class, I can think of no better piece of advice, both for them and for you and for us all, than, than to encourage them and encourage us all to live for what matters most. And in case you weren't 100% sure of the answer to that, what it is that matters most, Jesus is what matters most. I want to encourage you wherever you are, regardless of your age, I want to encourage you to live for God. Live for the cause of Christ. You know, since the beginning of the year 2020, we've been studying the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We really actually began studying in chapter 1. So we, we, we studied that first chapter and then chapters 2 and 3. We have been in there looking at those seven letters. A couple weeks ago we began looking at the last of the letters to, uh, the, to the churches in Revelation, which is the, the letter to the church of Laodicea. And we talked about pursuing the purpose of God. We talked about the hot water and the cold water and Laodicea and how the hot water had a specific purpose and the cold water had a specific purpose, but the lukewarm water was purposeless. And, and, and we, we, we saw how Jesus was condemning them, the, the believers at Laodicea. He was condemning them as a church and as believers, not for the things that, uh, not the things that they had not done, but the fact that they were doing things uh, that were purposeless. It's not that they were not doing anything at all, but it was that they were not serving their created purpose and doing what God had called them to do. And so this morning we're going to pick back up there in the church of Laodicea and just for the context and to get the full context of the passage, we're going to start back in verse 14. We're going to read all the way to the end to verse 22, but, but as we really unpack the scriptures here this morning, we are going to focus on verses 17 through 22 as we unpack what I'm calling four reasons to live for God. So we are in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Verse 17. Because you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness not be exposed. And ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. The victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we pray this morning as we study the words of Christ. Father, let us remember that these words in the book of Revelation are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they are in uh, the Holy Scriptures, Father, which all of Scripture is God-breathed. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these purposes, Father, these four reasons that we should live for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Four reasons to live for God. Number one, reason number one, earthly success does not imply eternal achievement. I'm going to say that again. Earthly success does not imply eternal achievement. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, because you say I'm rich, I've become wealthy and I need nothing, but you do not know that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You have to understand, again, you have to understand the context of the city of Laodicea. You see, the city of Laodicea was a very successful city. So much, in fact, that just about 30 years prior to the writing of this letter, Laodicea and, and really the whole area there in Asia Minor, in, in the area where Laodicea was, suffered a tremendous earthquake. And the earthquake completely destroyed the city of Laodicea. And the government of Rome came to the Laodiceans and offered them a, a disaster relief package. They offered them financial support and, and, and other supplies in order to help rebuild the city. But the Laodiceans were a very proud people. Uh, they were very proud of their success. And, and so in a period of 30 years, they completely rebuilt their city even better than it was before with zero help from the government. Not only did they rebuild it better, but of course they were having a lot of financial success during that time. Uh, they, were, uh, they were very accomplished financially, okay? This was, this was the good part of town where everybody lived in the nice houses and Everybody had really good, high-paying jobs. This was that kind of community. They were, they were also very proud of their scientific and medical abilities and their medical discoveries. In Laodicea, I told you about uh, last time about 
the hot waters of Heropolis where some people would come to Laodicea and they would go up into Heropolis to bathe in the hot waters if they had certain kinds of skin ailments or orthopedic problems uh, so that, that hot water would be soothing to their bones but, uh, but another thing that the Laodiceans had learned how to do was to be able to make a certain kind of eye ointment it was made out of some of the rocks that were in the area and uh, they would mix it with oil with other things and they would use this eye ointment and, and it could be used for certain ailments, certain uh, diseases around the eye and in the eye. Not every disease, but in some cases, if you would apply that ointment to, to the eyes or the salve to the eyes, then it could prevent you from going blind. They were very, they were very proud of their financial success. They were very proud of their ability to cause people to see, to be able to heal them and prevent them from going blind. They were, they were also very influential in the clothing industry. In Laodicea in those days, they raised these sheep, these very unique sheep with very specific black Wool, And so because they raised this, this type of sheep uh, with this black wool, they produced a very unique uh, sort of black clothing that was considered highly fashionable and was highly sought after in those days. And so here they were having a tremendous impact on, uh, on medicine and science, and they're having a tremendous impact financially with great success. They're having tremendous impact on their community because they're a, they're, there's a center of fashion, and people are looking to them and to the, the clothes that they are making. Everybody wants to wear their clothes, but listen, they did not understand that earthly success does not imply eternal achievement. They were very popular, very successful by the world's standards. But Jesus says, oh, you say you're rich, but you don't realize that spiritually you're poor. Translation, Jesus is saying to them, all these things that, that you're so proud of, all this stuff that you have achieved, Jesus is saying, look, that doesn't impress me. That, that, that's all fine and good, but you're not impressing me with that. Jesus tells them, you know, you talk about being able to make people to see, but, but you need to come to me because you're the ones that are blind spiritually. You need to come to me so I can heal you and open the eyes of your heart so that you can see past all of those things. You talk about wanting to dress people in your black clothing. So they'll receive honor from people on this earth. But you need to come to Christ. You need to come to me, Jesus says. And instead of giving you a black robe, I'm going to give you, spiritually give you, a white cloak of purity and of righteousness. Jesus is saying to them, you're having a lot of success, but you're neglecting the things that I've told you to do. And you know, for a lot of people in this world today, both inside the church and outside the church, when we achieve earthly success, very often we confuse that earthly success with, uh, with, with being in a right relationship with God. M many times we assume, hey, because God has given me certain things, 
he must be happy with me. I have a nice house. I have a, a nice car, a great job. You know, I'm, I'm living the American dream. So everything must be all good between me and God because I have all this stuff. But Jesus shows us that earthly success does not imply eternal achievement. Maybe God has blessed you. Maybe God's blessed you so that you could be a blessing to someone else. Praise God for that. But don't confuse your earthly success for, uh, for, for, for the posture that of, of God in his relationship with you. Just because you have all that stuff does not mean that God is, is just overwhelmingly happy with you. We must be cautious against confusing earthly success and spiritual success at the same time. At the same time, listen, at the same time, you've got to realize that, uh, that if you're not having a lot of earthly success, you can't confuse that with your uh, spiritual success and, and your eternal journey. Because maybe someone's out there and they're thinking, you know, I haven't accomplished all these things. I haven't accomplished this and I haven't done that. You, you think you should have done this by now or that by now or there's some dream that you thought that you would be able to do in your education or in your career or in your life. You don't have the things uh, sort of stacked up the way that you once thought that, that you would. You don't live in the big house. You don't have all the extra spending money. Listen, you cannot assume that God doesn't have a plan or a purpose for you. You cannot assume that if you don't have all that stuff, that God is unhappy with you. And it might just be that God has positioned you in such a way that you're just not distracted by all, all that stuff. And at this point in your life, you can serve God all the more. You see, the great preacher D.L. Moody once said, our greatest fear should not be the fear of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Four reasons to live for God. Number one, earthly success does not imply eternal achievement. And number two, God calls us to authentically surrender to Him. God calls us. He has created us to be surrendered to Him. Verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. And we can concentrate on a lot on the idea that God will discipline those whom He loves. If you are a parent or if you have ever had to care for somebody in your life, maybe a younger brother or, or, a, you know, or, or, or a friend or you've babysitted, at some point you may have had to discipline somebody. At some point maybe in your life you've had to put somebody in time out because of something that they have done. You understand that that discipline is really something that is done for their own good. As parents, Leah and I have certain things, uh, certain, I guess, standards and guardrails set in place for our children. And as they bump up against those things, we have, we have disciplinary actions. But that's not because we're mad or we're upset. It's because we love our kids and we want to teach them and to ingrain in their minds and in their hearts what the right thing is. But I'm also reminded 
as I look at verse 19, that God's discipline is one of the many ways that he is constantly and consistently investing in the lives of believers. Because God is continually reaching into our lives, continually giving us opportunities, presenting things in our path. And as we are obedient to him and as we submit to him, he is steering us in a path that leads us closer and closer to himself. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Now, we talk about how repentance Many times we talk about repentance and how repentance involves the act of turning away from sin and turning toward God. But another way of saying that is that you are completely surrendered to Him in our heart, in our minds, with our lives. You're saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Listen, I, I, I know that I can't do this on my own and I'm willing to do it your way. I'm going to do it your way because I want to live for you. God desires that we as believers live authentically surrendered to him. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just when we are by ourselves, but God wants us to be surrendered to him all the time. He wants us surrendered to him when we're, when we're with our family at a restaurant. He wants us to be surrendered to him as we invest in the lives of the people that we love. He wants us to be authentic, not fake, but completely committed and repentant. Or another way, he wants us surrendered to him. Not just saying words. No, we're not talking about magic words. Oh, I got caught sticking my hand in the cookie jar. So I'm going to say, I'm sorry this certain way. And that sort of magically just makes everything okay. No, it, it, it's, it's the idea of, I stuck my hand in the cookie jar. And, uh, and maybe I realized it before I did it. Or maybe I didn't think about it until I got caught. But at some point, I began to realize what I did was evil in the sight of God. Because he told me not to do that. Or I, I, or I refused to do something that he told me specifically to do. That's being surrendered is realizing that God's way is the best way. Four reasons to live for God. Understanding, number one, earthly success does not imply eternal achievement. Number two, that God calls us to authentically surrender to him. And number three, the third reason to live for God is that God's purpose emerges as you embrace a relationship with Him. God's purpose is going to continue to emerge in your life. What that means is it's going to become more and more clear to you the more and more you embrace a relationship with Him. That's when Jesus says in verse 20, maybe one of the most famous most quoted verses in Revelation, certainly in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, listen, or maybe you heard it in the King James, behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. Listen, Jesus offers to us reconciliation 
with God through a relationship with Christ. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. Yet by the amazing grace of God, this relationship is offered to us. And that uh, is a relationship with God. And that relationship is available to anyone who is willing to embrace it through faith in Christ. I love it. Think, think about this. I, when I read Revelation 3.20, I also think about John 3.16. In both of those passages, it's Jesus talking. In both of the passages, it's John who is the author that's recording this for us. And there are some amazing parallels. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. I think about John 3, 16, when, when, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Listen, in both of those passages, it's God who is initiating the relationship. God sent his son to connect with us. He sent his son from heaven for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And we see evidence of that when Jesus says, I'm here right now. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. There is a relationship that is available. It is a God-initiated relationship. And then I love what he says. The next thing, he didn't just say, I'm here. He says, I'm here. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Implication is this. God has made the first move. God offers to us a relationship. But the implication here is, is that you, you, don't, you can't just know that that's offered. You have to be willing to embrace the offer of that relationship. Jesus says, says I'm right here. The reason why he says, uh, then, you know, whoever hears and opens the door, then I will come in and sup with him or eat with him or dine with him, depending on, on what your version uh, of the word says there. Here's, here's the picture that is, is being drawn here. The dinner table was a place where relationships were facilitated. Relational bonds were formed and they were deepened through uh, interactions that they would have. Many interactions, but one of the, the, the most uh, uh, deepening things uh, that they could do in their relationship is to sit down and eat together. To fellowship together. At the Last Supper, Jesus dined with his disciples as they celebrated the Passover feast. With, with, which was customary. It was what they were supposed to do, have this feast. But it, would, it allowed people to gather together, be bonded together in their faith as they remembered the things that God had done and they had fellowship with one another as they had fellowship with God. It's just like if you invite somebody to your house, you cook them some dinner, and they decide to take you up on that invitation. They embrace that invitation and they come to your house and you sit down with them and what do you do? You talk with them. Whatever relationship you ha have with them, maybe a new relationship is formed, but maybe a, a relationship that's already formed has deepened and it's grow it grows as you spend time with one another. Listen, here, here's what I want you to understand. When you and I embrace that relationship with Christ, 
The more you and I embrace that relationship with Christ, the more you're going to understand, we're going to understand who it is that God has called us to be, what it is that God wants us to do. I remember in student ministry having a student come in to me a few years ago, and he told me, he says, I want to be a better person. He says, I want to stop drinking. I want to stop using bad language. I want to stop doing this and stop doing that. And I was tracking with him, and I was saying, awesome, that's great. Amen. Praise God. Let's go. And so let's talk about it some more. And so as we talked and talked more and more, through that conversation, that young man had admitted to me that he had never put his faith in Jesus Christ. That he, he, he really had never put his trust in Jesus. He never had that, that, that moment that, that Paul talks about in Romans 10 where he says, if you confess and you believe. I had to tell him that all this, you know, wanting to be a better person stuff, it really didn't make any difference if he did not have an authentic relationship with Jesus. So here's the thing. Listen, students, you can try to make yourself a better person, but you're never going to be able to be connected to God in a way in which you become his child, in a way that brings salvation, in a way that brings the Holy Spirit of God uh, into your heart to live inside of you, to guide you, direct you, and give you wisdom. That's never going to happen until you come to him through authentic Faith in Christ. Because apart from that relationship with Christ, we don't have access to the Holy Spirit. It's that Holy Spirit that will, will guide us. The Bible says that for a believer, that for those of us that are believers, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And that our bodies become the temple of God's Spirit. And His Spirit guides us and helps us to understand His Word and convicts us of sin and motivates us and encourages us. It's the Spirit of God within us, but that doesn't come until we have a relationship with Christ. And I don't know where you are out there today as you are watching this, but I want you to ask yourself, do I, personally me, do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if you're not 100% sure that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you've repented of your sins. I'm not asking you if you're perfect. I'm asking you if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. Have you opened your heart to him? If you're not 100% sure of that, if you have any questions whatsoever, then my prayer is that you would let us know. Click on that response tab, let us know. I would love to set up a time to sit down and talk with you. But for those of you that are here this morning that are believers in Christ, listen, I, I want to share with you something that I, I've, I've seen over and over and over again in many people of multiple ages throughout my time in ministry. I've seen many believers in Christ get frustrated in their walk because they've been told they need to serve God's purpose and they need to live for God but they can't quite figure out what God's purpose is for them in that moment or in their future. They can't quite figure out, how do I live for God in this moment? What does that look like for me? Listen, this is what it looks like. You do the things that you know to do. You pray. 
You get in the Word. You get involved in a New Testament church. You need to be, you need to be mentored by other believers. You need to be discipled. Even if you've been a believer for many years and you're mature in your faith, you need people who are further down the road to invest in you and love on you and speak wisdom into your life. You need to find ways to serve Christ because through that process, He's going to grow you. And the more you embrace that relationship, the more He will reveal to you His purpose for you today and in the days ahead. Many of you are here today, you're watching with us today, and you've sensed at some point in your life, maybe even now, the Spirit of God leading you to do something or calling you to not do something. Maybe He's pushing you in a direction or He's trying to hold you back from something that you're trying to do. And whatever it is, and you hear, you hear Him knocking at the door. Instead of opening that door, you've just been trying to, to ignore it. So I want to tell you something. If you're in Christ, amen to that. Praise God for that. But I, I, I want you to understand, you cannot forget who it is that Jesus is writing to in Revelation 3. It's not to the heathens at Laodicea. It's not to all the atheists at Laodicea. It's to the believers, to the church of Laodicea. Listen, they were Christians too, but they were not living for God the way that he had called them to. If you want to live for God, then you need to not only hear His voice, but you need to open that door, fully embrace that relationship. If you've been around me very much, you know that I enjoy presidential history. And one of my favorite quotes comes from President Reagan, who, who himself was, uh, was quoting President Lincoln when he said this, and this has always stuck to me. President Reagan said, We must be cautious in claiming that God is on our side. And the real question is this, are we on his side? And then President Lincoln took it a step, a step further than that by saying this, he says, because God is always right. Whose side are you on? Whose purpose are you living for? Are you living for what matters most? Someone once said, and I don't know who this quote comes from, but I found a quote that says, Life isn't about finding yourself, but it's about discovering who God created you to be. And maybe you're here today, you're with us today watching online, and you're thinking, hey, that sounds good, but God doesn't have a purpose for me. God doesn't have anything for me. I want you to notice the last verse. Verse 22, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Four reasons to live for God. Number one, earthly success does not imply eternal achievement. Number two, God calls us to authentically surrender to Him. Number three, His purpose is going to emerge, become more clear as you embrace the relationship with Him. And number four, God has a specific and a personal plan for you. Do you have an ear? Can you understand these words? Whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you have been, if you're listening to me right now, God has a personal plan for you. 
Live for what matters most and live for God. Let's pray.